Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Coffee and Cases. I am happy that I get to share a small bit of good news with you sleuthhounds. Maggie and I will, after our respective family vacations are over, be back together for our episodes. I'm getting ready to go on vacation. Maggie has just moved, and as she mentioned in a previous episode, she hasn't moved far away, just to a different nearby town, but she has been painting and unpacking and decorating and renovating and, well, keeping herself more than busy. But she will be back with you, Sleuthhounds, next week with an episode. So if you're new to Coffee and Cases, please know that our podcast has changed slightly as our world is continuing to adjust to a global pandemic, especially here in the U.S., while we are being asked to keep our distance from others, to stay inside when possible, and to not gather in large groups, we ask that you bear with us as our podcast has changed a little as well. As always, thank you for bearing with us and for understanding we care about you. Stay together, united in the human spirit, even if not physically, and stay safe. Now, sleuthhounds, this week, our episode just so happens to be a listener suggestion. Please, sleuthhounds, if there is a case that you read about, you saw on television, you heard about, please pass that case along to us by reaching out on Facebook. As I've said a million times, this is a relationship we're building here on this podcast, and Maggie and I love hearing from you. Only together can we bring awareness to these cold cases and potentially closure for these families. And what better or more noble pursuit is there than that? Now, on to this week's episode. Trust. Honesty. Those two traits are ones that are likely the most important characteristics we all look for in friends and in partners alike. The American tea company, Honest Tea, has for years completed a social experiment to test the reaches of those very traits. Are they common traits, trust and honesty, or are they rare ones? Honest Tea set up bottled tea displays across America where one could buy a bottle for only $1. The kicker, these displays were unmanned and paying for the bottle you take was based upon the honor system. So every person who took a bottle would have a choice to make. Take the bottle for free, knowing full well that you owe a dollar, or pay what you know the bottle costs. With no one to praise and conversely no one to reprimand, would you do what is right? What's truthful? What is honest? While some cities have been statistically more dishonest than others, an overwhelming majority of Americans every year around the mid-90th percentile 
roughly 93 to 95% of those grabbing a bottle left a dollar to pay for the beverage. Some cities like Honolulu were the most honest with 100% paying customers for multiple years in a row of the experiment. And it's experiments like these that give us hope that maybe the world isn't so dark, that we can trust our friends, our neighbors, or even strangers. But then there are also cases like today that cast the doubt again. Cases like today that re-prompt that small voice in the back of our minds, warning us that there are still those five to seven percent of people, the ones who are not to be trusted, who take advantage, who are dangerous, some of whom you maybe even thought were your friends. Did the focus of our case today fall prey to one of those dangerous few. This is the case of Jody Husentrude. cases where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams and my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page Coffee and Cases podcast because as we all know conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Before I begin our show today, I want to remind you about our challenge. This one, as we say each week, is a lofty goal that has not changed. But Maggie and I want to get to 150 ratings on iTunes. We now have 97, including another new written comment this past week. Whoop, whoop. Now, For all of you listeners who have not yet rated us, I want to, no, that's the wrong word. I need to do a squeal of joy to celebrate you. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It only takes a split second, if you're listening to us, to click for that five-star rating and leave us a few words about what you enjoy most about the podcast. We have listeners from all over the world, so while this is a big ask, As we say each week, Maggie and I know that you can do it. When we get to 150, we'll do another bonus episode. Just make sure that you follow us on social media, Coffee and Cases Podcast on Facebook, or at Coffee Cases Podcast on Instagram, or as always, listen in each week to know when that bonus episode will air. Now, let's get into our show. In June 1995... 
Jody Hoosentrude was a rising star on the local news network, and she didn't want her fame to stop there. She had dreams of being on a national stage and of the fame that stage would bring. Unfortunately, Jody never got the chance to fulfill that dream. Nor was she ever seen or heard from again. Jody was born June 25th, 1968, the youngest daughter of Maurice Nicholas Hoosentrout and Emma Jean, who went by Jane Hoosentrout, and grew up in Long Prairie, Minnesota. Her whole life, anyone who knew Jody knew how driven she was and how talented. She was highly skilled in golf. Her high school golf team won the state Class A tournament in both 1995 and 1996. And she knew that she wanted to go into broadcasting. She was good at it, a natural, just like in golf. And she wanted to become a household name. So after high school, Jody majored in mass communications and speech communication at St. Cloud State University. While she took a job right after college to work for Northwest Airlines, that was just a small pause on her bigger life plans. It was when Jody was offered a job in Cedar Rapids, Iowa at the CBS affiliate KGAN that her career goals were finally getting started. In her growth, as is often required in careers such as this one, one has to move around, taking small steps of growth as one goes. Likewise, Jody, after a stint in Cedar Rapids, took a position at ABC affiliate KSAX in Alexandria, Minnesota, and then moved back to her home state of Iowa for a news anchor job with the CBS affiliate KIMT in Mason City. She was now officially on her way. Her diary entry from January 1994 succinctly stated her goals, quote, improve my career, make more money, communicate, have more impact on a larger audience, get the Hoosentrout name out, make mom proud, end quote. When I tried to psychoanalyze that diary entry, it's clear that Jody saw her career as the means to achieve the rest of her goals since it's what she listed first, but it isn't her own fame that she views as the ultimate realization of all of her hard work. It was pleasing her mom, making her mom proud of her. Jody loved her family. Her sister, Joanne Nath, recalls in an interview with WOWT in Omaha, quote, I couldn't have had a better kid sister. She tried to motivate me. What are your goals? End quote. From the research I've done, it seems that Jody was one who came alive around people, and she pushed them to be better in return. She was social, happy, and she made friends easily. So... Even though when she took the news anchor job in Mason City, she was a couple of hours away from where her mother lived, she likely settled in quickly and soon established a close-knit friend group as well as a broader-reaching network of acquaintances. One particular person who seemed significant in her life in Mason City was a man named John Van Sice. 
Van Sice, who was 20-plus years Jody's senior, recalls that he and Jody quickly fell into a father-daughter type relationship. In an interview with CBS in 1995, Van Sice said, quote, I just loved watching her have fun. I tried to watch over her. I tried to check in on her once in a while. Not all the time, just once in a while. See how she's getting along. If you ever go into her apartment and you see men's clothes, they're mine. If I had a shirt she liked, you know, I'd wear it for a while and then I'd give it to her, end quote. Van Sice also said something similar in an interview with KIMT in 1995, quote, She was like a daughter to me. She was just like my own child. I treated her like my own child, end quote. Van Sice was so close to Jody, in fact, that he threw her a surprise 27th birthday party with many of her other close friends and would often take her, along with his own son, out for fun days out on the water in the boat that he had actually named after Jody. The weekend of June 24th through the 25th, 1995, Jody spent one of those weekends on the water with two friends of hers, Van Sice and Van Sice's son. According to an article by Kim Pascalini, Jody wrote an entry in her diary on June 25th that read, quote, got home from a weekend trip to Iowa City. Oh, we had fun. It was wild, partying and water skiing. We skied at the Coralville Reservoir. I'm improving on the skis, hips up, lean, etc. John's son, Trent, gave me some great ski tip advice, end quote. In addition to skiing that weekend, reporter Mike Bunge wrote that Steve Ridge, a cold case investigator, heard reports and saw video footage that show images from that weekend of Jody and a female friend of hers boarding a Mastercraft ski boat of two men whom Joni had not previously known but met that weekend. Jody and her friend were drinking with the men, singing, and later dancing on the ski boat. This was a weekend of carefree attitudes and enjoying just being young. The young man who owned the boat videoed Jody and her friend exhibiting just that mood and their laughter-filled dancing. That video of the energetic and fun-loving Jody Husentrout was one of the last taken, though, before Jody disappeared on June 27th, only two days later. Several sources reported that John Van Sice was not pleased that Sunday on the lake by Jody and her friend boarding the other boat and with the behavior while there, but that he didn't overreact or act in any way alarming to show that displeasure. Obviously, Jody was an adult and could make her own decisions about what she wanted to do, but perhaps if Van Sice felt like a father figure for Jody, he might have just been worried. As a parent, those parents out there, you know that worry doesn't stop even when your children are grown. As the work week started back after that fun-filled weekend, Jody had work early Monday morning. She would have to leave her apartment around 3 a.m. in order to report to the station by 4 to prep for her news segment that would air between 6 to 7 a.m. And as much as Jody loved to enjoy herself with skiing weekends, it was her career that kept her centered. On Monday, June 26th, after work, Jody participated in a golf tournament hosted by the Chamber of Commerce. 
during the tournament, while enjoying her other love of golfing, Jody mentioned in conversations with others that day that she had been receiving crank calls lately. While she didn't mention in any of the research I completed what, if anything, the caller said on the phone, I did read that the calls were disturbing her to the extent that she mentioned to friends either going to the police or changing her phone number. Later that evening, the day before she disappeared, Jody went to spend several hours with John Van Sice. He had a videotape of the 27th birthday party he had co-hosted for her and wanted to watch it with Jody. She had gone over to his place to view the video before returning home that evening and calling a friend of hers from Mississippi before going to bed. Jody, despite having had those crank calls recently, was reported to have sounded happy cheerful, both in her visit with Van Sice and in that phone conversation. She likely went to bed soon after the phone call. After all, she had an early alarm set in order to leave her apartment at 3 a.m. to be at work by 4. Tuesday morning, June 27, 1995, Amy Coons, an assistant producer for KIMT, the station for which Jody worked, noticed that the clock read 4 a.m. and Jody was not yet at the station. Since this was unlike Jody, remember her career was everything to her, Amy called Jody. The answer on the other end of the line was a groggy Jody who's intrude. She had overslept. Amy Coons said that the call had obviously woken Jody up, but that Jody said she would be right in. An article by Danielle Gurr notes that a follow-up phone call from Amy Coons to Jody at 5 a.m. went unanswered. The morning of June 27th, according to the Find Jody website, was a foggy and drizzly morning. And now, since she normally left at 3 a.m., Jody would have been nearly two hours late already, so she would have been in a rush but Jody never made it to work. Despite the phone call from Jody's producer, which would have still allowed Jody to make it to work in time for the morning anchor spot, Coons, the producer, had to fill in for Jody. Now, fearing that something had happened, an accident, a fall, something, right after the morning show ended at 7, Coons called the police at 7.13 a.m., and asked them to do a welfare check on Jody. When police arrived, they found a scene that indicated foul play. There, in the parking lot, was Jody's red Mazda Miata. On the ground beside of her car were obvious signs that a struggle had taken place. On the ground was a hairdryer, a bottle of hairspray, a pair of earrings, a pair of red shoes, and her bent car key. It was that bent car key that indicated to police that Jody was likely in the process of getting into her car when an attack took place. Having dropped all of her items and noting heel marks, drug in the dirt near the car as if Jody had been physically drug away, were all the authorities needed to know that this was the scene of a crime. They began interviewing neighbors, dusting for fingerprints, checking her apartment, and calling friends to discover last known whereabouts. 
The police were able to lift a partial palm print off of the car that did not belong to Jody and presumably happened in the struggle. But Jody's apartment, it was put together. No sign of a struggle there. The crime had obviously happened in the parking lot itself. Now, while the hour was early and the attack or abduction likely took place shortly after 4 a.m. when most people are still asleep, this parking lot was very open, very public. Despite the openness, unfortunately, not a single witness saw what happened to Jody, or at least has never come forward with that information. There were only two reports of things out of the ordinary that morning. First, an article in the Globe Gazette cites that Police Chief Jack Schlepper found in interviewing others in the apartment complex that shortly after 4 a.m. there had been a mid-80s white Ford Ecoline van sitting in the apartment complex parking lot with its parking lights on. In that article, Schleiber stated, quote, I want to emphasize that the person or persons associated with the van are not necessarily suspects. They simply may have information that would help us in our investigation, end quote. But no one ever came forward and not even a license plate for the van was ever given. The second report came from several witnesses from the apartment complex who reported hearing a scream coming from the direction of the parking lot shortly after 4 a.m. However, most research seemed to indicate that because the scream only happened a single time, no one went to investigate. No one called 911. Then, Sleuthhound, sadly, I can skip to today because we still don't know where Jody is nor who was involved in her abduction. Bodies of water have been dredged looking for her remains. Thousands of interviews have been conducted. Hundreds of leads followed, but with no viable leads, Jody Husentrout was declared legally dead in 2001. And today, 25 years after her disappearance, there's still no solid suspect, no named perpetrator. Instead, there are just lots of theories. So I'll go through several of those with you now, and I'll begin with several people and events mentioned thus far in the episode. Theory one, the stalker, someone after a public figure. Not only did Jody mention crank calls to acquaintances at the golf tournament the day before she disappeared, she told friends and family further fears about a stalker. Jody's cousin, Mary Lee Moberg, believes a stalker is the most likely possibility. Additionally, Jody's sister Joanne and a friend, Tammy Baker, add that Jody had felt that she was being followed by a man in a black truck one day close to the date of her disappearance when she was out jogging. Jody's sister admits that the man in the truck may have been an innocent bystander, but it was enough to scare Jody, which at minimum indicates how much the crank calls were worrying her and how much she felt she was in danger. 
friends and family report that Jody had filed a police report on a stalker some seven months before her disappearance, but the police deny knowledge of any such report ever being filed. Could this have been the result of someone who became obsessed with Jody after seeing her on the news program? Theory two, the boat owner. Officers reported that the owner of the Mastercraft ski boat made it a habit of inviting women on board, giving them drinks and getting them dancing, and then videoing them dancing on his boat. Some wonder whether one of the young men on the boat maybe followed Jody home to know where she lived, showed up in the following days to make a move on her, confront her, or even abduct Jody. And while I think it's a bit creepy to video a barrage of women dancing on his boat, the owner, who has never been named a suspect, voluntarily turned over the video he had taken of Jody and her friend and, again, is not considered a viable lead. Theory 3, the driver of the white van. This theory has no other backing than the fact that the white van was in the parking lot right around the time the abduction took place. This fact has led many to believe that those driving the van either were involved in Jody's abduction or saw something concerning the crime. And because no one associated with the van has come forward, that alone has led many to believe that it's linked to Jody's disappearance. After all, whoever took Jody, that person was aware of Jody's schedule. They knew what time she left in the mornings, where she lived, which door she would exit, and which car was hers. Theory four, her friend John Van Sice. Most who look into this case end up wanting to take a closer look at Jody's older friend, John. Many people do not understand the relationship he argues they had and instead believe that there must have been something more, that he truly wanted a romantic relationship with Jody and maybe he became jealous when Jody would show attention to other males and not to him particularly damaging for Van Sice's role in the investigation is that he was the last person to see Jody alive when she came to watch the video of her birthday party. Adding fuel to those accusations, FBI profiler Jim Clementi, based on an article by Lou Raguse, told the producers of Up and Vanished that when he himself watched the birthday party video, he felt that when Jody would show attention to other men at the party, that Van Sice, quote, had a really evil look in his eyes, end quote. Could he have made an advance that Jody rejected and that angered him? But sleuth hounds, while Van Sice was and still is a person of interest in this case, he was never charged. He willingly turned over the birthday party videotape and Van Sice passed a polygraph test denying his involvement in the disappearance. At the time, he told a reporter with the Globe Gazette, quote, I was offended at first, but now I understand. I'm glad I did this because it proves I had nothing to do with it, end quote. Even his home was searched 
but no viable evidence was found. Several of Van Sice and Hoosentrude's mutual friends maintained John's innocence as well. A woman by the name of LaDonna Woodson provided an alibi for Van Sice. She argues, and I agree with her, it's hard to argue someone's definitive involvement in murder because you think he gave an odd look. Solid evidence? Yes, that's enough. A facial expression? No. Woodson says that she and John went for a walk together the morning of Jody's abduction from 6.45 to 7.45 a.m., She had called him at 6 a.m., and to her, it sounded as if she had just woken him up. She has sworn to her timeline under oath and reported that Van Sice did not show any indication of anxiety or stress on their walk that morning, as he likely would have done had he been involved in a crime less than two hours earlier. In March 2017, Another search warrant was issued for GPS data on two of Van Sice's vehicles based upon a tip received by law enforcement. However, this search didn't turn up anything either. Van Sice has notably turned down almost every interview about, about Jody's disappearance. He's now 74, tired of the accusations, and currently battling an aggressive form of Alzheimer's, and still maintaining, in one of the few interviews he did grant to investigative journalist Steve Ridge, that he would never have hurt the bubbly young girl he treated as if she were his own. LaDonna Woodson has also never changed her story about her time with Van Sice that day. However, Payne Lindsay of Up and Vanished said that their investigation has revealed new information. And while Lindsay did not accuse Van Sice directly of involvement, he did say the following, quote, basically all I want to say is that timelines aren't matching up for everyone in Jody's life. I think that a clean timeline is truly key in a missing persons case like this. I always go back to the timeline for each person of interest, end quote. Do with that, sleuth hounds, what you will. Now, a couple of other possibilities were also discovered as police began a more detailed investigation. Theory five, link with a friend's death. In April 1995, just three months before Jody's disappearance, her friend Billy Pruin died mysteriously in his apartment. His death was initially ruled a suicide, but was later changed to inconclusive, as there were some oddities in the case, like the fact that there was no gunshot residue found on his body, as there would have been had he committed suicide. According to an article by Allie Vander Hayden, Pruin had been vocal about the growing methamphetamine problem in the area and had likely angered many local drug traffickers. Many believed Jody was investigating her friend Billy's death. If indeed he was murdered, some argued that she may have gotten too close to the truth and was abducted as a result in order to silence her. 
according to Oxygen Network's Up and Vanished production. A friend of Billy Pruins noted, quote, Sometime before his death, I had talked to him, and he was nervous about something. He acted like something could happen to him, something bad. I definitely feel that Billy was murdered, end quote. Did Jody have similar notions? Did she find something that she wasn't supposed to? After all, Pruin's death also remains an unsolved case. Theory six, a local convicted rapist. Officers discovered that only two blocks away from Jody's apartment now lived a man convicted of a string of rapes across Minnesota, all of whom were stalked before they were raped. Many noticed a striking resemblance between Jody and the man's ex-girlfriend who had broken up with the man less than a week before Jody's disappearance. However, despite denying interviews, the man, now serving time in prison for the confessed rapes, has replied to several investigative programs like 48 Hours, maintaining his innocence and denying any involvement in Jody Husentrude's disappearance. And even though a cellmate informed that the man had written a rap about Jody, no solid evidence has been found to link the man to the crime. The Mason City Police released the following statement, quote, After conducting a thorough investigation, which included interviews, crime laboratory analysis, records review, and polygraph examination, the man in question is not considered at this time a viable suspect in the investigation, end quote. Theory 7, Police Cover-Up. A former detective for the Mason City Police Department accused both a retired Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation agent and two officers of being involved in Jody Husentrude's kidnapping and murder. The detective reported that an informant had given her credible information that would implicate the three in the crime. According to an article by Kim Pascalini, the detective reported the information to her superiors, but nothing was done to them. Instead, she was terminated. I will admit a different source I read, however, noted that the detective, the one accusing, had been fired before her accusations of the other officers. Those same accusations of law enforcement surfaced again when several billboards were put up around Mason City about Jody Husentrude. On them were pictures of Jody with the following poignant question. Somebody knows something. Is it you? One of those billboards was vandalized with the name of one of those detectives mentioned as implicated in the crime with the additional phrase, machine shed. The officer named on the billboard did have a machine shed behind his home. However, that was not the house the officer lived in at the time of Jody's disappearance. So it appears that this was more likely an act of vandalism instead of insight into the crime. Additionally, official investigations found no validity to the accusing detective's claims. Theory 8. The Country Club Golf Tournament. 
Several believe that Jody may have come into contact with people at the country club during the golf tournament who later came to abduct her. Up and Vanished on the Oxygen Network proposed that two individuals, a man and a woman, could have been involved. The woman was an employee at the golf course, and she and the gentleman she's associated with were arrested for the murder of five people. The man is now on death row, and the woman was sentenced to life in prison. A recent article entitled Journalist Expects Arrest in Murder of Jody Husentrude, published April 10th of this year, reported that an accomplice of the man's says he knows what happened to Jody. Additionally, the woman from the country club says a man who she was involved with knows what happened to Jody. Currently, that man's execution is on hold due to COVID-19. I can only hope these accusations can be verified before time runs out. While Jody can't be brought back and Jody's mother unfortunately passed away without ever knowing what happened to her daughter, her family still needs closure. Jody still needs a resting place. Let's not forget Jody Husentrude's name. That's the last thing she or anyone who values justice wants. No one remaining in Jody's family has given up hope that one day justice will be served. Mason City Police Chief Jeff Brinkley stated in an interview with the Globe Gazette, quote, A lot of people think it's a cold case, but it's not. It's still an active investigation. We follow up on every tip we get, and we always will. Someone out there knows what happened. You can't do something like this without telling someone. Someone knows. End quote. The Find Jody website has recently launched a podcast about what might have happened to Jody. Carolyn Lowe, a former crime reporter and an investigative reporter for the new podcast, hopes that her podcast will help keep the focus on the case and lead to justice being served to the one or ones who know something coming forward. Investigative journalist Steve Ridge, mentioned earlier in this episode, also stated in an interview with Taylor Vessel published only two weeks ago, that he has spoken to, quote, new and potentially valuable witnesses, end quote, and that based on new information, solving this case is still, he believes, a distinct possibility. Hope and closure, sleuthhounds. Those are not things we often get in the cases Maggie and I cover. I only pray that this family and the families in all of our cases can find that peace, that closure one day. And that one day can only happen if we prove they can trust us. They put their trust in us to tell any and all information we may have that might help solve these cases. They put their trust in law enforcement to inspect every clue, to question every suspect. Trust and honesty, the traits we value so much in others, are the very things needed for closure. I can only hope 
as the honest tea social experiment tried to prove that those traits are more common than what we might expect. Anyone with information about Jody's case is asked to call the Mason City Police Department at 641-421-3636. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you next week. week.